Hello, and welcome to the podcast about podcast. The podcast about choosing a different topic every week to do a podcast about. I'm Samuel James, the guy who relates to every 21 Pilots song but refuses to admit he likes them. And this time, we're talking about... A history of vampires. <laughs> so... First, it's important to say that by vampire, I mean a supernatural, human-like being that drinks people's blood. Vampires do a lot of other things, but there's too much variance. Some become bats, some don't become bats. I really like bats. So, we're going to say that a vampire does vampirism. They don't have to have their teeth or be friends with Keanu Reeves. Vampires have been a part of almost every society's folklore. Not really in the modern sense of undead and immortal, most of the time ancient blood drinking myths were demons or the devil who happened to drink blood as a side gig. One of the earliest examples we have of this was prevalent in ancient Babylonia. That shows just how far back we're going. We have to specify it was ancient. So, ancient Babylonia existed from 1895 to 539 BC. And that's basically all we have to go off for the origin of this myth. We don't have any writings that start with an on the 14th of January 1233. I made a Lilith, lol. But it's definitely still old. So, Lilith was Adam's original wife who was banished from Eden because she wouldn't listen to Adam. Since then, she became an immortal evil being who drinks the blood of babies. She's also known as the Queen of Demons. So, basically the first vampire we know about was considered to be the worst female demon in this culture. This is because in the Hebrew culture where she originates, it's forbidden to eat any part of a human, including the blood. The blood has always been synonymous with the life force of a person. When someone's stabbed, you see the blood leaving the person, along with their life. The fact Lilith was taking baby's life force, which obviously is the opposite to maternal Eve giving birth to all of humanity, it basically makes her the most evil thing that Hebrews at the time could think of. She is meant to be the opposite of goodness, and drinking blood symbolises that. The myth of Lilith has been very well documented, and shows that from the start, Vampires or vampiric actions have been evil, not like Edward and his sparkly body, which is very good. Blood drinking is a taboo most societies do not openly cross. Other mythology from ancient worlds also have vampiric connotations, like Osiris, Kali, and Lamia, who respectively originate from Egypt, Asia, and Greece. Blood drinking has been part of stories for millennia. With so many vampiric-like stories, I'd like to skip ahead to where vampires become more vampire-like. More supernatural, less mythical deities. I promise it's only partially because I realised I was in over my head with myths about drinking blood. Christ, there's so many. So, skipping ahead to 1656, my favourite year, where the first real person that we know of was said to have become a vampire. This is significant because it means that this vampire was very close to the myth we know of today. Not just a demon from hell who happened to drink blood, but an undead corpse. Of course, it's all nonsense, but the people believed it, so we should listen. The guy was Joe Grando, who, to be honest, wasn't an important guy, which is really weird to me that this was just a normal man about town and then suddenly became the villain after death. But anyway, this lad died at 77, which was above the life expectancy in Croatia in 1950, let alone 1656, so I think he deserves some props. So, he died from natural causes, probably and then reports started appearing of him wandering about town, smiling with dead animals across his shoulders. Then the guy's poor widow said he appeared on the end of a bed and sexually assaulted her. Not cool, Joe. The priest who buried him tried doing the whole holding up a cross and talking about Jesus thing, and it didn't work. 
One villager chased him and tried using a stake, but it bounced off his chest because he'd been working out all day. That's a lie. Just bounced off his chest because he's supernatural. So, then the vampire would apparently knock on people's door at night, and then someone in that house would die within a few days, probably from having their blood drained. This went on for 16 years, before finally the villagers were like, well, I don't want to die. So they went to his grave, dug him up, and his corpse looked not decomposed, just like a normal guy with a smile on his face. So they tried the stake again, which didn't work, obviously, they tried it before, and then they cut off his head. At this point, the corpse screamed and bled and died again. So, all's well that ends well. Okay, so, if you're like me, that earliest vampire story wasn't satisfying. It was just a series of events with no explanation. So I'll try explaining why people thought these things. First, the stakings. That seems like such a random weapon to me. So, it turns out stakes were traditionally used on corpses to stop demons possessing them. It keeps them connected to the earth so they can't get up, like a tent peg. Nowadays, we talk about wooden stakes. That's probably just what one guy said and everyone didn't question him. Traditionally, the stakes could be wooden or iron or stone, just anything that kept them in the ground. So, the people thought that if a stake stopped a vampire in the ground, why wouldn't it stop a living undead? But it didn't in this story. It bounced off him. Cool. So, why did people believe a vampire was going around in the first place? Mostly hysteria, probably, and the reports have been embellished to make them sexier until they eventually made it onto Wikipedia. But, a part of the story could almost be true? When they opened the coffin, he wasn't decomposed. Now, okay, 16 years later throws a spanner in the works, but if we just ignore that and say a few months after the death they opened the coffin, it's possible that the well-sealed and well-made coffin would slow down the rate of decomposition dramatically, especially in the cool, cool earth. It's thought that that's where vampire stories come from, because most people at the time thought decomposition would happen almost instantly, so when they found a preserved body, they thought something odd was going on. There's also reports of blood around the mouth of some corpses. Some even say Joe Grand had this, which I'm not going to lie, I would find freaky too. But, turns out we're all wusses and this is normal. When a corpse starts to decompose, it does so from the inside out because you have the bacteria inside you which starts eating your body. This makes a load of gas in the body, making them look full, which is another possible reason why people thought they were vampires. And the increased pressure from the gas in the body forces blood out of the mouth and eyes, which is terrifying and very vampire looking. It also pushes blood to the skin, making the corpse look redder than just after death, where they're very pale. This change made them look more alive, and traditional vampires are red skin, unlike our modern pale or sparkly vampires. The red skin tradition is what inspired the vampires or the Y in Darren Shan books, and that's pretty cool. So, people thought corpses were vampires because they were naturally dead and properly decomposing, but to be fair, I think I would have been one of the first peasant villagers to say vampires are about if I found a body like that. So, the story of Joe Grand sets the stage for the rest of the 17th century in Eastern Europe. There were occasional tales of one person coming back and sucking blood, murdering and needing to be stopped, burning, stakes, beheading and placing a brick in the mouth of the deceased were all common ways to stop these vampires that were apparently everywhere. By the mid-18th century, this had become an epidemic throughout Europe even having some cases appear across the pond in America. It wasn't just one group either. Medical professionals were convinced vampires existed, and many serious articles were published by London's top scientific journals about the undead and how vampires act. Why? 
Well, because people had seen them. People had seen the corpses with blood, and these people were dying mysteriously. You have to bear in mind that this was about 100 years before germ theory even started to get taken seriously, and diseases could spread rampantly through villages who had no concept of the spread of disease. DISGUSTING! So, vampires were everywhere and corpses were being defiled. The governments through Europe were taking it all very seriously, writing papers and examining the bodies, and this information spread. The thing is, when you stake a body or burn it, there are no more vampire attacks, because there never were any. So people kept doing it, but then people believed the threat was gone, so they started blaming other things like disease instead of the now dead vampire. So why not keep doing it? Probably because it's quite disrespectful. So people naturally started including these creatures in fiction. The first we know of is blandly called The Vampire from 1819, but more exciting stuff started coming out, like Varney the Vampire in 1847. Sounds a like Barney the Dinosaur. Varney was the first publicised vampire with the classic fangs. The hating sunlight aspect originates from Dracula having less power in the day, but the first actual sun-fearing from a vampire was from the film Nosferatu in 1922, which was based off Dracula but had none of the legal rights. But we've skipped ahead a lot there. Let's step back a bit to Camilla. Carmilla, not the Duchess of Cambridge, but the OG lesbian vampire. Despite being way less known than other vampire stories, it's considered to be the origin of the vampire genre in fiction that we still have today. So, essentially, if Lefanu hadn't started writing about sexy lesbians, we wouldn't have what we do in the shadows. The reason why this story was revolutionary was because it was one of the first popular stories where we got to know the vampire, rather than it being just a scary non-humanised monster with a face. So essentially, Carmilla is a young girl who is quickly adopted by the main family, and the daughter of the family gets along really well with Carmilla. Carmilla makes some romantic moves to the daughter, and after that, the daughter has dreams that a cat jumps on her bed, becomes a human, and drinks blood from her breast. She then finds a really old portrait that looks exactly like Carmilla, and she turns out to be a vampire. Shocking. So, since 1871, vampires have been sexy, and we still see that today. Lefano introduced things that are still in our vampires right now, like sexiness, shape-shifting, supernatural strength, incredible beauty, castles, and being one with nature. This novel directly inspired Dracula. I'm talking Bram Stoker read it and was like, damn, I can do that, but a bit better. No offence. Right down to the shape-shifting, the first-person perspective, and the sexy nature of the blood-drinking. It was around this time that vampires became pale, too because they were based less on the bloated corpses and more on a fictional view of the undead. But I'm not saying Bram Stoker just copied Lefano. He definitely made it his own, but in terms of creating the modern vampire, I reckon Lefano did more of the creation work. So, Bram. I think this guy is fascinating. He's not actually a writer by occupation, really. He's a well-off guy who was the personal assistant of Henry Irving, who was way more famous than him, and he was also a business manager. But one day, he just sat down and wrote the second most famous literary character ever, second to Sherlock Holmes. Nowadays, people say he might have secretly been gay. That's just based on him being quiet and Dracula sometimes being a bit homo. It might be true, but it's far from confirmed. Dracula was released in 1897, heavily inspired by Carmilla, and not very popular at the time. Everyone who read it loved it, including Arthur Conan Doyle, The Daily Mail, and H.P. Lovecraft but not many people did read it. 
It only raised in popularity after Stoker's death, when Dracula started being in films like 1922's Nosferatu. So, how did Stoker evolve vampires? I think that the biggest thing he did was make Dracula be able to make people into more vampires through sharing blood. That is genius. And since it was introduced, it has remained a core essence of every vampire. He also did something very bad though, but it's also stayed with vampires for over a hundred years. He associated them with bats. I love bats, it's just a big shame that everyone hates them because of this guy. So, Dracula can shapeshift, and he mostly does it into a big black dog. However, at one point he becomes a bat-like creature, and that's what's stuck in culture. Since then, people have thought bats were evil and sucked their blood. He incorporated this probably because he read an article that was popular in Britain at the time, talking about bats sucking blood in the east. So, humans came up with vampires way before we discovered vampire bats, and then we found the bats, and it's not fair that they just happen to feed similarly to our made-up enemies. For more deets on this, listen to the previous podcast, the podcast about bats. Self-promotion. Whilst we're on a tangent, Dracula was also released in Iceland. Well, I say also released. This one guy called Valdemir Asmundsson, sorry, I butchered that, he decided he was going to translate Dracula in the newspaper he owned. But he also thought he could do a better job than Bram Stoker, so he just changed the story completely, incorporating gorillas and more sex and replacing a lot of the talking with just action scenes. And this was released in 1900. That's 120 years ago. And it wasn't discovered that he did this weird thing until 2014 when someone tried to read it and compare it to the original Dracula. So for a while, a long while, we've just thought Iceland had the exact same book that we had. Turns out they had a mentally different one. So... In Dracula, they go to a fancy castle and there's a lot of sexual tension, cooking, fog, spookiness, and vampire hunting. Exchanging bodily fluids is a very common theme, not just between vampires and the people, but between the people themselves. They do many blood transfusions to try and save each other. This is meant to be a comparison between the old world supernatural and modern day science, as well as sharing vitality. Interestingly, Dracula dies off page, I guess? We don't actually experience it. That's because the story is more about the people and their bonds rather than the mysterious vampire. Dracula also de-ages as he drinks blood, which is sometimes used nowadays in vampire stories. But Dracula is the one who has remained in culture, not Van Helsing that much. Or, I don't even know the name of the main guy, I'll just look him up. Apparently he's called Jonathan Harker. So, Dracula essentially gave birth to the modern vampire. Since then, there have been so many adaptations with different powers. People just pick and choose what they want in their story. In terms of the evolution of vampires, Dracula was the last who gave him a power that has stuck, which was the ability to convert people into vampires. It stuck through Darren Shan, Dracula, Twilight, Castlevania, What We Do in the Shadows, and many more. Despite these vampires otherwise having different powers, which have been just either made up or taken from old stories, they all have in common the ability to make more vampires. The bat, I mean, I know I felt it bite me, but look, there's only one. Goodbye, Jim. And good luck. So, the modern vampire essentially built off the foundation of Dracula, which built off the foundation of Camilla, which built off the foundation of 18th century hysteria, which built off pockets of folklore, which built off ancient demons. And the worst of it all is what they did to bats. In my notes here, I have a sad face. 
it really affects me. So, now we've got onto the modern day fictional vampires, let's talk a bit about the real life vampire subcultures. Whilst there are many stories about people like Vlad the Impaler drinking blood in history, that's mostly just a show of power and very disputed. But nowadays we have real groups of people who claim and show us that they do drink blood. Some of them wouldn't like being mentioned in a little podcast by a 21 year old in his flat about vampires because they try to distance themselves from the supernatural, but others would love it. So I'm going to talk about them. Modern subcultures of vampires are people who drink blood. They're normally pretty quiet about it and claim it's an innate biological need. Apparently, a thirst for blood appears just after puberty and stays with them for life. Different vampires need different amounts of blood and get it from different sources. They describe the feeling as being incredibly thirsty and only feel satiated after drinking some blood. For most, it apparently isn't sexual in nature or linked at all to blood fetishism. But that's definitely how some got into it. I'm not going to judge these people, but I am going to mention the incredible amount of diseases humans can have in their blood. These people use sanitary medical equipment to make a slice on a piece of the body that doesn't scar, and then the majority of them feed directly from the flesh. Spooky. But overall, vampires have a mantra, which they say repeatedly in interviews, which is that they only feed consensually. Some vampires don't like being associated with the vampires of the media, and don't like people who dress up as the supernatural kind and worship the occult. They call them lifestylers. In very much the same way as David Bowie, eventually admitted he was a closet heterosexual, and he was just practicing the lifestyle for the fashion and intrigue. It's very similar. Other vampires, however, they love dressing up and engaging with what society thinks of vampires, and many conventions welcome these people and thrive off it. For example, the Vampire Court of Austin, or the Wave Gothic Treffen Festival, which has as many as 18,000 vampires in attendance. Overall, there is no one vampiric subculture. Some do it for sexual reasons, others hate those that do it for sexual reasons, some claim it's biological, others like the aesthetic. There are so many varieties, but almost all found each other through some love of Dracula. He set the path for the modern fictional vampire, as well as modern real-life vampires. The earliest vampire society we know of even was named after Dracula. It's called the Dracula Society and it was created in 1972. It was originally a film appreciation society, but eventually it became a hangout for real-life blood drinkers. Crazy. So, thank you for listening. I hope you know more about vampires and how they've changed. And as always, you're my favourite listener. Subscribe. Next time, we'll be talking about... Tattoos.